I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Today's show is Just a Spoonful of America, prescribing American studies to fight fascism. This turns out to be more than a little ironic, given that fascism currently stands astride the planet once again. The world we know was built on skills, but that alone don't count. Perhaps our music tonight would offer a better chance at a cure. It comes from James Booker's album, Let's Make a Better World, live in Leipzig, Germany. And it's the title track that opens the show. James Booker was a rhythm and blues keyboardist born in New Orleans, Louisiana. Booker combined rhythm and blues with jazz standards. Musician Dr. John described Booker as, quote, the best black, gay, one-eyed, junkie, piano genius New Orleans has ever produced. Unquote. When your neighbor's down, you gotta pick him up. Nobody can live in despair. Booker recorded a number of albums while touring Europe in 1977, one of which was Let's Make a Better World. It was not released until 1991, when it became the last record to be produced in the former East Germany by the record label Amiga, a state-owned music publisher at the time. Everybody let's the idea that art, literature, and music in particular might work as a sort of martial plan of the mind is our topic tonight. At the end of World War II, located in the heart of Europe in a castle in Salzburg, Austria, we find a center of denazification and cultural projection, hosting seminars on the newly crowned American Renaissance writers, Emerson, Melville, Hawthorne, Thoreau, and Whitman. Could reading American literature denazify Germany? Our guest tonight, recorded via Skype from his office in Amsterdam, is George Blaustein, an assistant professor of American studies at the University of Amsterdam and the author of Nightmare Envy and Other Stories, American Culture and European Reconstruction, published by Oxford University Press. His essays and reviews have appeared in N Plus One and online at The New Yorker. Blaustein's book traces what can be called the propaganda program of creating a national identity, what it means to be American, by critiquing its classic example, Margaret Mead's And Keep Your Powder Dry from 1942 written to support and promote the idea of the American as the good soldier in a just war. Blaustein also highlights the European adventures of F. O. Matheson, a gay, Christian, socialist, Americanist professor at Harvard, who also plays a part in shaping the notion of an American civilization with his books American Renaissance and From the Heart of Europe. But Matheson's own life, especially his politics, and his death are instructive of the ambiguities in defining America, of being allowed to represent America. And now, in the wake of the so-called American century, with the resurgence of fascism in the US, Europe, and South America, we must interrogate the idea of a national character. Is there actually a representative American identity? And if there is, maybe it's nowhere near as noble and just or democratic as has been conceived. Or is there now a need to de-Americanize the world? Let's begin with a recent ending. In an essay for N Plus One called My Fellow Prisoners, 
George Blaustein takes a critical look at one particular American character, the late Senator John McCain, a self-styled Robert Jordan, the hero of Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. And now, just a spoonful of America with George Blaustein on Interchange on WFHR. Writing as much about the style of these people as much as anything else, what they are in the world and how they produce mm-hmm. meanings for the rest of us as well. Um, yeah. So, which is which is fascinating. The the the, the piece on McCain, which you mentioned, uh, is written as much on the character John McCain, not so much the character of John McCain, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. McCain as a character in a particular national story. Do you want to put some flesh on that? Yes. So this, the germ of this essay was about a year ago, I was talking with a friend of mine, and I don't remember how this came up, but I, I don't remember what we were even talking about McCain, but I, I mentioned that McCain had himself written an obituary of the last American to die who had been a member of the Abraham Lincoln brigades in the Spanish Civil War. So McCain writes this fond portrait of a communist who had uh, fought against Franco in Spain. And McCain writes very romantically about uh, Robert Jordan and for whom the bell tolls and Ernest Hemingway. And there was something sort of sweet about it. And this was in, you know, 2015 or 2016 that McCain had written this thing. And I thought that was uh, charming. Say this to a friend of mine. He says, oh, that would be a good essay, McCain and Hemingway. And I thought, oh, interesting. And then, of course, that's a fairly familiar story that Hemingway is McCain's favorite writer, and he never shut, he would never shut up about <laughs> Hemingway. He's talked about Robert Jordan all the time. But in any case, the germ of the piece was about McCain's fondness for a particular American writer. And I had also read the David Foster Wallace profile of McCain in Rolling Stone, mm-hmm. which was itself a curious work of political journalism. And this led me to do an effect, to do a deep dive into McCain. So I read McCain's books. I read Faith of My Fathers. I read, um, what's the second one? Worth the Fighting For, which takes its title from For Whom the Bell Tolls. And then when his last memoir uh, came out, I read that. And what emerges when you read McCain is a uh, is a hero in a novel um, and a self-styled hero, a, a creator of his own mythology. And it's possible to be very cynical about that. And on some level, I am um, I have no particular love for McCain as a figure, but he was unique in he was unique in American politics since the Vietnam War. This was my realization in reading McCain. He was unique because he had been insulated from the transformations of American culture from 1967 to 1973, which was the time that he was in uh, Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a cocktail of mythologies beneath the mythology of McCain. One is a Rip Van Winkle figure who has been uh, insulated from a cultural revolution or a, the opening of a cultural chasm or some dramatic cultural change, who then comes back into the culture and therefore 
the rest of the culture can project all of these things onto him. That is so interesting and unique about McCain because he was a POW because of his particular history. He was like the only figure in the American political scene on whom could be those projections of other generations. And I just found that quite interesting and hadn't, I hadn't read anything that gave that form. Mm -hmm. Secondly, um, he was a literary statesman of a kind, even though he's a villain of the war on terror and so forth, he would speak with something like eloquence about the literature that inspired him. And I wanted to give that form as well to take seriously, at least provisionally, like the, the literary style of John McCain. In order to do that in an essay, one has to, I had to put on hold like most of my ideological objections and uh, treat him as a treat him as a hero who was always looking for a narrator. Mm-hmm. That's how I see McCain. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is George Blaustein, an American Studies professor in Amsterdam, whose book about the making of American studies is called Nightmare Envy. We're talking about John McCain's identification with the hero of Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, Robert Jordan. I wanted to ask, uh, as you were talking about uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, is was there more to McCain's Hemingway love than that particular novel. I mean, you know, for me, Hemingway is as much just a short story. I wouldn't say just, sorry about that. (laughs) Not just a short story writer, but uh, the bulk of what moves me about Hemingway is short stories. Um, And, um, you know, were there other particular Hemingway narratives he he found useful or is it just that one particular novel? I think it's just that one particular novel. He's actually, um, uh, he says something like, he says something like, um, he, he, gives an account of uh, accidentally reading, uh, of, of picking off of his father's shelves for whom the bell tolls when he's 12 years old, opening to a random page, being captivated by the stark, manly war prose of uh, Hemingway and so forth. And then he uh, says something like, Hemingway remains my favorite writer and uh, for whom the bell tolls remains my favorite book by that writer. Over the course of his life, particularly over the course of his uh, political career from the um, late 90s uh, forward, I think McCain developed something like a neurotic attachment, not to the novel for whom the bell tolls, but the actual character of Mm -hmm. Robert Jordan. Mm -hmm. And that neurotic, I think it is a kind of neurosis or a compulsion. And what I think is sad, perhaps, for both McCain as well as the world and in light of the the wars with which McCain was associated, he was attached to Robert Jordan as a hero of the American century, more attached to the, to this hero of the American century, the farther we actually moved from the American century itself. Hmm. So he clung in effect to Robert Jordan more and more as the, um, as the, the disasters of the war on terror and clung more and more to Robert Jordan such that then um, there are these anecdotes, for example, of McCain's aides having to remind him that Robert Jordan is actually a f- fictional character. <laughs> what would Robert Jordan do? 
and um, that too is 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 uh, unique in McCain. Mm, that's pretty fascinating, and and we'll actually, I think, confront something like this as we talk about the European response to American fictions being uh, ethnographies more than fictions. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's pretty interesting. So, Robert Jordan, I and I'm gonna I'm gonna confess, I haven't read the book. Um, I've I've read much of Hemingway, but not that particular book. It didn't hold any. Fascin- I didn't get it off my dad's shelf. Um, so I don't know much about Robert Jordan as a, a character to emulate or to imagine you can think what would Robert Jordan do. Is, is Robert Jordan a worthy hero? Robert Jordan is the character who dies for a noble cause. Mm. So Robert Jordan goes to Spain and he's a Spanish professor from Montana. Of course, he's um, uh, like all Hemingway heroes, fluent in the – uh, the language of whatever country they're in <laughs> and um, uh, can thus speak authentically with the people of that country. Mm-hmm. And so there is, uh, there's uh, Robert Jordan from the bell tolls is a novel that's like of the uh, Spanish people. Uh, in any case, Robert Jordan is sent there to blow up a bridge. He uh, fulfills his mission knowing that he's going to die. He dies. And as he dies, he says something like, the world is a fine place and I hate very much to leave it. The world is a fine place and worth the fighting for. I hate very much to leave it. And uh, noble death is the thing that McCain liked about Robert Jordan. It's actually unique among Hemingway heroes, most of whom actually live on as, mm-hmm. as broken and hard-boiled, yeah. as hard-boiled men. Yeah. And so Robert Jordan is actually uh, unique yeah. and, and it's, it is interesting in the obituaries of McCain or in McCain's last years how many liberal commentaries on McCain sort of fell for that narrative of Robert Jordan without seeing what a terrible, dismal allegory Robert Jordan is for the war on terror and or for the wars in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. And that, I think, is where it becomes really bitter, like – if you are a soldier in Afghanistan, what kind of consolation is it when McCain makes a surprise visit to you and tells you the story of Robert Jordan and how great it was for Robert Jordan mm-hmm. to die on the bridge? It did become a a, a mystifying allegory yeah. for the war. What an odd um, irony in some sense, right? McCain uh, doesn't die in his war. In fact, you know, as many people would point out, it's uh, the, the mythology itself masks what you know what may be a complete failure in soldiery i suppose yeah yeah so so you know you could see him latching on to to a story to tell about himself through robert jordan uh, and not choose jake barnes or something yeah exactly exactly (laughs) so so the short the short version of my essay about mccain might be something like uh mccain's misreading of hemingway so Mm -hmm. the, the essay is about McCain is a reader and a misreader, um, but at least he was a reader. That was that's. I, I think that's what um, a lot of liberal commentaries on McCain would gravitate to. Oh, here they would be nostalgic for the fact that he was um, at least he found meaning in American uh, literature. At least he found meaning in literature itself. Oh. And so McCain's literariness was, I think, on one hand, quite genuine. On the other hand, it was the thing, was one of the things that made him seem like the one good Republican. 
It's time for a break. This is One Hell of a Nerve by James Booker, live in Leipzig, Germany, in 1977. When we return, we'll talk about the creation of the idea of national character. What is it to be American, or German, or Japanese? Stay with us. You got Change. Our show is Just a Spoonful of America, an investigation into the creation of American studies and American identity. In this segment, American studies professor and author George Blaustein talks about Margaret Mead's 1942 book, And Keep Your Powder Dry, an anthropological study of the people of the USA. I'll tell you just what I that makes your book interesting. It's confronting uh, national identity. It's confronting the idea of a national character. It's confronting, yeah. you know, how these are created and and proposed to be a certain thing. Uh, so it's why I like the book uh, as much as anything else is to say, well, what is this, right? What is this national character? Who gets to write about it? Who says it? Who creates it, et cetera? It's a big part of the book. And, um, you know, the use of anthropology in, in particular is fascinating yeah. as well. And so uh, I guess that's probably the the place to start right is trying to understand what is national character mm. you know is it a thing that's real at all you know or is it simply mm. a propaganda idea to to encourage people to act certain ways um you know what makes someone uniquely american or slash united statesian right there's more, yeah. more than one america so um versus what makes one uniquely german or japan japanese you know these these nationalisms or these character traits are are confounding in many ways and but yeah. they but they're intentional right these ideas we need to create a national not necessarily we found this national character but we mm -hmm. propose this is our national character and we need to write write stuff about it so that other people will agree with that yeah i think that's i think that's uh, that's exactly right and i think this is a good spot to talk about uh, margaret mead in mm -hmm. particular mm -hmm. so uh, the book that's often cited is the first anthropological account of uh, the united states is from margaret mead in 1942 
two, uh, this book called and keep your powder dry. And I wanted to, one of the chapters of the book is a, is an account of national character as a social scientific endeavor in the middle of the 20th century in the United States and as a genre, something like a literary genre. This, this is a bunch of social scientific tech, social scientific texts that have not aged very well at all that often seem quite ridiculous. For example, the idea that, that uh, Japanese that Japanese imperialism was somehow caused by um, a particularly grueling regime of toilet training, <laughs> uh, that the, the, the sort of anthropological, uh, this uh, extreme anthropological argument. That, you're now, uh, you're going to have said this on the radio and people are going to shake their heads as if you're making that up, but that is I mean, literally, <laughs> that is a real thing. That's true. It's true. It was, uh, Jeffrey Gorer who was, um, uh, who was sort of Margaret Mead's protege. He made two, he made two ridiculous arguments about, uh, well, more than two, but one of his <laughs> ridiculous arguments was about um, Japanese toilet training as the as the germ of uh, uh, Japanese uh, authoritarianism, and then um, Russian swaddling as a as a germ of you know Stalinist Russia, even though um, Stalin was Georgian. Anyhow, um, those are that 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 actually ruined that that. Gore himself, Jeffrey Gore himself, um, did damage to the reputation of national characterology as a as an endeavor. But it began as uh, you're exactly right. It began as a um, mix of description and invention, where these anthropologists, social scientists, figures like Margaret Mead and uh, Talcott Parsons among others, are mobilized by the American government in the Second World War for various purposes. On one hand, it is a kind of cultural reconnaissance. Can we understand the Nazi enemy? Hence, I have anthropologists writing analysis, like psychological analyses of Nazi propaganda films. Uh, on the other hand, to articulate something like an American character that is usable for morale. It's not simply a matter of coming up with uh, propaganda images or boosting the war. It's about, or at least the thinking was that, that anthropological knowledge was particularly useful in, in, um, in understanding the population that needed to be propagandized to. <laughs> hence, Margaret Mead, hence Margaret Mead writes this uh, book that is uh, a weird double book. On one hand, it offers something like a portrait of America. It and it's very. It's I must say it is a. This is I've used the word charming before. And keep your powder dry is a. Uh, uh, it has, it has a certain charm. You read it and you think, oh, it's true. It is a mobile population. And that's why we tend to make small talk on trains. This kind of um, uh, these kinds of uh, absurd generalizations. Mm -hmm. Um, in any case, that ends up being one of the formative texts of American studies as an American movement for national character as this is one of the main fields of American studies as a uh, as an endeavor. In any case, when I actually um, uh, when I revisited these these dusty old uh, silly national character texts, uh, something emerges, which is that they were 
very often anxious that the American culture they were describing was in fact a lot like the uh, German culture that they were describing. So in that sense, they were kind of approaching and avoiding something like a Frankfurt School argument about um, the harmony between um, uh, European fascism and American capitalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were nearing but also um, trying to steer away from uh, texts like the authoritarian personality, which emerged from the same uh, from the same movement. And secondly, even though the basic premise of national character as an endeavor was flawed, I don't think we would use these terms at all today, they make some pretty lively texts or strange and lively projections of Americanism to uh, far flung places. So I tried to I tried to uh, catalog that. Hmm. But someone who reads it might think that I'm making a case for national character. And I don't know if I am. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is George Blaustein, author of Nightmare Envy and Other Stories, a study of Americanist writing and institutions in the 20th century. We've been talking about anthropologist Margaret Mead's idea of national character, a creation that seems most useful to the social sciences. This is the interesting part of, the, of, of trying to understand these these different ideas of what America means or how to import it or how to imagine that America is uh, exceptional uh, mm-hmm. and, and replicable or um, mm-hmm. um, something you should, you know, aspire to be. We all aspire to be Americans in the world. And what does that mean? But I do no, no, want no. you to address the idea of the social sciences and humanities. One is, is more instrumentalized than yeah. the other. And so I wanted, I wanted to get your take on that. It's an interesting question, and one that I, I, I have—I don't have a definite conclusion about, but I think your—the um, question is a good one. And if we think, if we're thinking of the history of American studies abroad, two things: um, there's there's two kinds of instrumentalization that happens. One is uh, you're exactly right—an easily instrumentalizable um, uh, social sciences where. In fact, after the war in the occupations of Germany and Austria, uh, one does find a pretty clear statement of this, not only that uh, these texts produced texts like uh, Margaret Mead's and and Keep Your Powder Dry capture something about democracy, and that is communicable for the rest of the world, but also the idea that uh, the methods of the social sciences, that a, a kind of John Dewey inflected pragmatist social sciences uh, are what German higher education needs. So you even find explicit examples of this, of people saying, I have no love for, um, I have no love for John Dewey and no love for um, uh, uh, social scientific pragmatism or whatever, but at least we have it in America and can therefore, and I can therefore reject it. Well, Germany doesn't have it at all. <laughs> and so there's this, um, you have uh, comments like this. So it does become a, a plank of the, of the occupation of uh, Germany. The literature is slightly more complicated as a thing to instrumentalize. On one hand, the post-war occupations do sanction particular translations of American books. And there's a, uh, I had, this is, I'm drawing on secondary scholarship here, but, um, a, you know, a trans, a translation division of the, 
of the uh, information and control division of uh, the American occupation uh, has four categories of translation and it's for the purposes of democratization. And of course, one of them is, you know, intrinsic aesthetic merit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another is presents a favorable portrait of the United States. Um, Another is uh, captures something about uh, democracy. And of course, these are um, in practice. This is it's ridiculous which things end up in which categories. Well, I like one was one was has has great literary merit, but but puts the U.S. in a bad light. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. The ones. That, oh, that's been, that's my favorite. And of right. course, it's those books. It's it's those books, the ones that have um, uh, literary merit but put America in the, in the bad light. That end up being the ones that are um, uh, the ones that uh, Americanist scholars in the U.S. and Europe gravitate to. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's a kind of self congratulation, like, "Hooray! Look at us! We can put the grapes of wrath on a syllabus in Europe because we're so honest about our right. foibles and this." Um, and so this performing your own uh, self criticism be- um, uh, becomes the standard, one of the standard things in this uh, period. And then there's the unpoliceable element of literary diffusion in this period. It's time for another break. This is James Booker with Come On In This House, another cutoff of Let's Make A Better World, live in Leipzig. When we return, we'll look at the development of the idea that there are classic American writers that define the culture. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB. Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is George Blaustein, author of Nightmare Envy and Other Stories, about Americanist writing and institutions in the 20th century. For this segment, our topic is F.O. Matheson. He wrote the 1941 study, American Renaissance, Art and Expression in the Age of Emerson and Whitman, which offers biographies of Emerson, Thoreau, Hawthorne, Melville, and Whitman, but might also be seen as a kind of autobiography of F.O. Matheson, a political character study unique to its time.
The idea of having a culture that has, a uh, European culture that had sort of latched on to um, books like Faulkner's, uh, which detailed the, the, the terrors of the South as much as anything else, or the, the sort of um, uh, withered branch of, of Southern aristocracy and its, its corruptions and, um, I don't know, Dasadian enthusiasms, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then to have a, uh, you know, a Harvard um, Americanist want to reach back into the 19th century to say, let's try not to have uh, that America be the America we export, right? Let's, yeah. let's export these classic American authors who are writing in a period uh, prior to the Civil War. You know, okay. so this is Moby Dick and Walden, all the the things every high school kid you know, shudders to think about having to read uh, Scarlet Letter, which is not as long but as boring for most kids to read. Um, you know, and to and to and to say these are these are the the authors that we need to pay attention to. Why? You know how yeah. how is it that these are the ones that will be worth exporting or or tell us what America is about? Uh, it is strange this way. I think that if I were to do a genealogy of the American Renaissance, the genealogy of the of the idea that that moment of American literature contains some germ of a democratic culture, it begins, I think, with Lewis Mumford in the 1920s, who writes his book, The Golden Day, mm -hmm. which does uh, articulate something like that. That is the that that's. Uh, people sometimes mistake um, Matheson's American Renaissance as a canon-forming book, but it didn't actually uh, – uh, it wasn't like the book that rediscovers uh, Moby Dick by any means. Mm -hmm. But it it, um, it, crystallizes a, it it crystallizes a way of thinking about um, – a way of thinking about uh, American literature borrowing from a highbrow T.S. Eliot way of thinking about poetry and then also a like um, – popular front, uh, radical 1930s, uh, socialistic gathering of, uh, the literature of the people mm -hmm. somehow, uh, fuses these things to, together. Ethel Matheson and American Renaissance really is a weird and, uh, difficult book, mm -hmm. a strange, uh, quite a strange text. Um, in many ways, an impenetrable book, I think, for, for non-academic non -academic readers, right, even, right, in 19, right. even in the 1940s, mm -hmm. um, the term American Renaissance ends up being quite uh, useful. The interesting thing still um, for me is is the idea that it, it is sui generis, right? But the the situation is a, is a fascinating one as you, as you began to describe it, Who, because it's F.O. Matheson that is mm – -hmm. That is American Renaissance, right? The book is is a, perhaps a, a, an autobiography of a of a thinking mind at the time. You know, a, a mm -hmm. guy who is who is full of his own contradictions, um, mm -hmm. and is um, as you say, he's a, a socialist, you know, leftist, mm -hmm. um, which is okay at one point in America, <laughs> right? mm -hmm. and then immediately becomes a very bad thing to be, as well as he was a homosexual, which um, yeah. also had a brief period of okayness, at least in certain circles. Mm -hmm. and then, at least uh, in his, in his right, circle right, of right, right. Like Harvard gentility, mm -hmm, interestingly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and then that immediately is closed off as well. Um, yeah. So the book itself is kind of an exploration of a, a strange period of history even, a right? strange period of American thought. Here's a, here's one here's one idea that I've heard um, uh, articulated and that I and that I think is uh, that I think is true. 
Matheson's American Renaissance is a book of yearning. It is a um, an equ- equally poignant and pedantic attempt to wind together five literary biographies, Emerson, Hawthorne, Melville, Thoreau, and uh, Whitman. He looks to 1845 to 1855 as like the Old Testament of American literature. And um, those five writers together, when you put them side by side, uh, they simulate something like a democratic culture that could one day exist. <laughs> uh, so uh, that doesn't like Madison never says that, um, that that 1850 was like a great year for democracy. To the contrary, it's mm-hmm. like these forces are present in uh, in the culture somehow. And these writers, some of them uh, totally obscure and unread in their own time, uh, become uh, prophets. They become Old Testament-like uh, prophets. Mm-hmm. And then something about um, uh, Matheson himself as a as um, this gay Christian socialist wants to wants to realize that prophecy in some uh, New Testament way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a typological relationship between um, the literature that he um, uh, loves and uh, the political era of his own moment. Mm. And American Renaissance represents the attempt to fuse those. And uh, that itself is quite interesting. I think Afro, I think American Renaissance stands as one of those scholarly books that is also a testament to the to the terrors of its time or the mm-hmm. terrors and yearnings of its time. Another book that would that I would put in that category would be something like um, Eric Auerbach's uh, Mimesis, mm. the end of which, which is it doesn't really have a doesn't announce a clear politics, but at the end it says something like, uh, "I wrote this book in uh, like away from my library because I was displaced by war and I had to uh, reconstruct a lot of these things from memory, and therefore I'm sorry for any misquotation." You get this, um, you know, piece of criticism from the 1940s that is suddenly weighted with mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. more political morality than than scholarly books before or since. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is George Blaustein, and we're talking about the projection of American character onto Europe and Eastern Bloc countries after World War II through works like F.O. Matheson's study of five 19th century writers called American Renaissance, Art and Expression in the Age of Emerson and Whitman. That mystique, I think, still, um, uh, that's present in American Renaissance, even though it is um, a book of really amazing, uh, amazing uh, uh, specificity and at times academic pedantry. And there's something about that that does inform a field. It does inform American studies and it does animate American studies as a movement to the extent that it's a democratizing and idealistic movement. Something about that narrative of American culture is appealing precisely because it is an alternative to the American century, and it uh, it allows American studies as a as an academic export, as these like left liberal and sometimes uh, anti communist or right wing scholars, uh, to feel like they're carrying abroad something like a democratic New Testament, mm. and um, Madison, above all of the scholars in his in his period, uh, typifies that, and then it reaches a tragic end with him because he uh, commits suicide in 1950, and so it's 
um, uh, under suspicion of the House on American Activities Committee and under McCarthyism. So the, the, the easy story to say about him is that he was a, um, a, a, a the academic casualty, the first mm. academic casualty. A Cold War Cold, martyr. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. Cold War martyr. And I think that's, you know, by and large, a, a true account. Then, ironically, the term American Renaissance becomes a the name of a period, mm-hmm. and it ends up being, sadly and ironically, compatible with a more conventional American century overture. That longing for an American literature persists outside the United States mm. among Americanist scholars on both sides of the Iron Curtain, um, perhaps more vividly than it exists inside mm-hmm. the United States. The yearning, I mean. Well, there's uh, the the uh, one key sentence uh, in in the book is um, uh, on American Renaissance in particular. You write uh, individualism was the central myth of the 19th century American life, and in many ways the chief villain of American Renaissance. Now, this mm-hmm. is um, an irony for us to understand now that uh, this is the the key thing that defines America for so many people, uh, individualism, mm-hmm. you know, liberal individualism, even for people who wouldn't call themselves liberals, insist on individualism. And mm-hmm. here you're saying that this this unique text of American literature, American uh, um, literary studies in particular, uh, sees that as a villain, you know, as a villainous idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you expand on that a bit? Yes, I think you're. I think um, um, I'm. I'm very glad you gravitated to that uh, to that sentence. I think we could see American Renaissance as it's an answer to Tocqueville's Democracy in America, in the sense that Tocqueville, who first identifies something called individualism, by which he means just a sort of alienated figure, a figure alienated from traditional forms of uh, deference and connection and uh, Tocqueville's great worry about uh, about democracy has manifested itself in uh, the United States is that it would uh, yield a, 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 an isolated culture and or a culture of isolation and so on. And there's a lot of books in the 20th century that take up that idea, uh, particularly about middle class life. Uh, Matheson, uh, he finds in these writers, uh, their representation of individualism in a culture and their purging of that uh, force. So they, um, when American Renaissance, when the writers of the American Renaissance achieve tragedy, which is the great aspiration for uh, literature, at least mm-hmm. in Matson's view, what that achievement achieves <laughs> is a transcendence of individualism. And there's a both and quality where American culture can be both individualistic and then transcend it mm-hmm. and um, transcend it towards uh, something called uh, socialism. So when Matheson reads uh, Moby Dick, one of his readings of the book is that Ahab stands not for demonic soul self-selling, but rather um, uh, the individualism that fueled a industrial economy and uh, was therefore going to uh, destroy itself. And having the book uh, Moby Dick run the reader through that uh, tragic log- logic of individualism, Madison then suggests that Moby Dick, whether or not Melville realized it, was something like a proto-socialistic narrative. Uh, and he wanted to do that all the while uh, resisting a crude social realism or socialist realism uh, reading of literature in the 1930s. It's time for our final break. Here's another from James Booker. 
This is Little Tune for Lefty. When we return with Just a Spoonful of America, George Blaustein talks about the role of the Salzburg Seminar as a denazification project. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. For our final segment with George Blaustein, we'll look at the Salzburg Seminar as a denazification program. And we'll close with the assertion that the work of this era resonates with what Blaustein calls a moral depth and suggests a need to insulate scholarship from political disaster. One of the things to talk about her that I thought was interesting generally, right, is is not just Matheson and his his particular um, scope of activity abroad, but the fact that there was such a thing to be um, that 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 was taking place abroad, like this. Uh, I mentioned earlier the the term denazification. So mm-hmm. post World War II, there had to be a way in which occupied countries, Japan and Germany in particular, um, were taught how not to be German and Japan, Japanese in some yeah. sense, right? So the Salzburg seminar is one of the, the, is one of the biographies you tell, right? So mm-hmm. obviously you tell biographies of, of a sort in your book as well, your book being a kind of uh, form of American Renaissance also, um, trying mm-hmm. to tell these biographies uh, of places as well as people. So yeah. there, there is a Salzburg seminar biography in here also. Tell us a little bit about the Salzburg seminar. Uh, it was founded in 1947 by some not American studies uh, Harvard students who um, uh, who wanted to who wanted to recreate like a uh, interwar seminar, you know, an interwar um, uh, seminar for uh, post-war Europe, and the idea is to bring uh, 100 students from different European countries together in a uh, in an uh, academic setting and thus restore something like a European intellectual community. This is what they, um, this is their uh, narrative of it. And they get funding from student relief organizations. It's a, a transnational student relief operation in 1947, private, tenuously approved of by the American occupation in Austria. And this place, this one strange institution, ends up being the 
formative site of American studies in post-war Europe. Mm-hmm. And uh, the germ of this book was that when I was in graduate school, my uh, my advisor, Werner Solers, who was uh, at the time writing a very wonderful book about the um, American occupation in Germany, uh, sent me a note saying, hey, I know you are interested in um, uh, the history of American studies in some form, because I had written some paper about it. Salzburg Seminar happens to have a um, untapped archive happens mm. to have a um, uh, an archive that people have to really look through. So I said, "Oh, great!" Because I was desperately looking for a dis- dissertation topic, and then I ended up um, uh, finding that archive quite interesting, precisely because it was the uh, a point of entry for most for for uh, a who's who of American writers and intellectuals across the political spectrum going to post-war Europe. So if there was any site where you would get um, uh, literary intellectuals as well as social scientists uh, reflecting on their own predicament, this would be the place. Additionally, there was a huge amount of uh, writings by uh, European students and actually a pretty broad cross-section, not um, uh, not simply elite students, uh, writing about uh, American literature and American culture. So then the archive determined the shape of the chapter. And that institution, as this founding site of American studies, where FMS and Todd, and which at first is a kind of lefty little utopia in the castle where eventually parts of The Sound of Music were filmed, and which had been during the war, uh, occupied by, um, uh, as used as a kind of Nazi salon. Uh, in any case, uh, that place ends up being too radical for the American occupation and um, contained, as it were, in 1949, 1948, 1949. And so as an institution that illustrates American studies after the war, as well as cultural diplomacy and military occupation in cold war sort of it was an ideal uh, an ideal and for the most part untapped spot there is a, a very brief history of radicalism right the, i mean it's and you can obviously we we've always already touched touched on matheson's socialism or uh, uh, near communism perhaps um <clears throat> and but that that didn't take long to to go away or to be recognized that the people over there at the time were 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 not um the kind of americans that the military in particular wanted to be denazifying anyone yeah yeah these the harvard long hairs <laughs> i mean there there was there's a there's a it does anticipate in some ways at least the way that I mean, I, I uh, excavated this history as best I could from uh, the archives of the American occupation. Um, into the scene comes a bigoted, um, I think he was a biologist or a geologist, uh, colonel in the military who shows up in 1948. And it's like, what is these, what is this, uh, what are these Harvard radicals? What are all of these socialists uh, doing mm-hmm. uh, in my occupation? And amazingly describes the Salzburg seminar. He was the, he was the person in head of, in charge of education policy of the occupation in uh, Austria, he described the he described the Salzburg seminar as the most frustrating thing he had to deal with in his tenure in his position, which just seems so bizarre. I mean, this is the same moment that the movie this is the same movement the same moment as the 
as the plot of the third man is taking place in uh, Austria. Uh, and this, uh, these like a bunch of uh, uh, American studies scholars and European students are your are your grandest frustration. It does reveal the limits of the uh, political limits of the early Cold War in that way. Well, you know, I hate to be alone. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Just a Spoonful of America. We're talking with author George Blaustein about the way the character of America, the American identity, was constructed to be projected upon the world. And what does this mean in the age of Trump? Again, another way in which we we come to uh, understand how useful culture is, even as it's described on on one level or one plane by certain people a certain way and then other people making use of it in other ways, right? So all the all the sort of CIA infiltrated groups and funded, mm-hmm. you know, culture. It's just such a such a weird world. Um right? I mean it's just you're just like they're like these massive military powers mm-hmm. headed headed by so few people saying <laughs> you know, who are who end up I don't know, injecting these particular ideas across the globe and and the rest of us just kind of flailing along behind it. Obviously, after the election of Trump and now our midterms and the strangeness that's happened in terms of the Supreme Court, even though I don't know that it's strange, the theater was the oddest theater I've ever seen, um, mm-hmm. not least because of Kavanaugh's performance, but but that now, but because I'm in the space I've been that I've been in with Trump, everything's th- theater, right? Yeah. Is that I now think think everything is designed as it is, like it's not opposing forces, right? The, that the mm-hmm. Blazy Ford is as a distraction to allow Kavanaugh into the Supreme Court. You know, yeah. like that's now I'm seeing everything. <laughs> That, that way, and I and and when you start to narrate it to yourself, it makes sense. That's part of the problem, right? Now I, I'm yeah. I'm struggling so much with understanding what the hell's going on. I find myself always in this predicament teaching American studies outside the U.S., where I am, and and particularly this has been particularly acute since the Trump election, which I didn't necessarily experience as a surprise, uh, though I did experience it as um, an enormous grief. Mm-hmm. And I, or my experience of it was uh, from, although I, have, I mean, I have family in America and I, and I go back and I vote absentee. Um, I was, I did find myself uh, surprisingly overwhelmed by uh, grief and then had to try to offer something like a narrative of America here, a mm. uh, narrative of uh, America outside the United States. And on one hand, the prehistories of American studies that I excavate in the book, some of them do resonate. You do get a sense of a moral depth of scholarship or a, a need to insulate scholarship from political disaster or a need to write for something like a future, mm-hmm. even if you're not sure there is a future, mm-hmm. uh, or the idea that there's something um, uh, palliative or like world-making about humanity's work, and that that palliativeness or world-makingness is different from 
mere political righteousness or resistance. Mm. That um, uh, something about the earlier, uh, the kind of classic phase of American studies for all of its flaws, and the flaws are profound, there's something about that uh, earlier generations of Americanist writing that resonated with me somehow, even though I was writing this book before, most for the most part before the uh, Trump election. And so now I find myself in a, uh, as an American studies scholar, in a real predicament because I'm not entirely sure how to justify American studies mm. as a you know, separate academic thing. I mean, it exists. Students, it, it's a robust intellectual tradition in a way, but it's always needed to justify itself in some way. It's never been uh, self-justifying. And I mean, of course, I'm not an authority on all American studies writing being uh, put out today, but I, um, I sometimes w- I worry about the now more than ever problem. I worry about the about writing only for the present. I worry about a kind of self-defeating uh, righteousness among American scholars. I worry about um, uh, performative dissent. I worry about performative dissent that's not actual dissent because mm-hmm. um, I like actual dissent. <laughs> and the truth is, I, I I have no idea what to do. And I think that the um, that's a thing I'm I'm still trying to figure out what what's what's the justification for uh, American studies after the American century, and I don't know. You know I've got no one to talk to To tell my troubles to That's our show. We'll close with another track off of James Booker's Let's Make a Better World, recorded in Leipzig in 1977 and finally released in 1991 by Amiga Records, the last album produced by the state-owned East German record label. Thanks to George Blaustein, author of Nightmare Envy and Other Stories, American Culture, and European Reconstruction, published by Oxford University Press. You can find several of his in-depth pieces on political characters such as John McCain, Barack Obama, and the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia at N Plus One, a magazine of literature, culture, and politics. Next time on Interchange, Capitalism versus Freedom. It's been no contest for quite some time. Rob Larson joins us to travel the toll road to serfdom. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. My father has them too. My sister's gone around the corner somewhere. Black night just keeps on falling, keeps on falling. Well, you know I hate to be alone. I just keep crying for my baby.